Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Make the logo big. Make the logo bigger. Make the logo big. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Confessions of a Creative Director, hosted by yours truly, Jaime Cabrera, 24-plus-year veteran of this crazy world of marketing and advertising. This is a show for everybody who is a creative director, wants to be a creative director, is just creative, wants to learn about new and different ways to think about creativity. This show is for you. So thanks for tuning in. It's been a couple of weeks I'm trying to stay on my every two week schedule. I may have fallen behind a little bit, but here it is. Uh, been busy with work, lots of stuff going on, but I wanted to get this episode out. Today we're going to be talking to uh, a creative by the name of Devin O'Neill. And I had the honor and privilege to work with Devin at Advantage. Uh, we worked together probably not quite a year. And unfortunately, you know, when COVID hit, he was uh, a casualty of that. But I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that someday we can um, return to working together because this guy is freaking brilliant. And uh, nerd alert, we're definitely going to nerd out on a bunch of stuff. This guy is super into all kinds of things. So we're going to talk about hacking Tamagotchis. We're going to talk about reading theory books uh, on mushrooms. We're going to talk about leading from the emerging future, whatever the hell that means, uh, organizational change theory. So we're going to get into a lot of really cool stuff. This guy's fascinating, um, and I think you're just going to learn a lot about how people like him think. Uh, it's really interesting. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here's Devin O'Neill. Devin O'Neill, you magnificent son of a bitch. Here I am. I was just about to ask you if profanity is allowed, but I guess that answers my question. Yes, it is. So say all the F, you know, drop all the F-bombs you want. I, I have chosen the explicit rating on the podcast for that very reason. So we can say, you know, all those all those fun words. How are you, man? Good to see I'm you. Good. I'm good. It's good to see you, too. So for the folks listening at at home, um, you and I used to work together. You were an associate creative director uh, for me for a a little bit a little bit too short of a time you were a little bit of a, a covid casualty mm-hmm. um and i was obviously it was it was pretty devastating to um you know see, see you go but you know hopefully we will be able to work again in the future mm-hmm. but um you know it's good to see your face we've been we we keep in touch you're part yeah. of my songwriting group so we stay in touch that way by the way i need to admonish you or scold you because you have not been turning in your songs no i have not sir. I, have been, what? I have been productive in many other ways but i have been neglecting songwriting group and for this I yeah feel 
deeply guilty. Yes, you should feel d- deeply guilty because we miss uh, we miss your songs. You're an incredible songwriter as well. In addition to being uh, a, just a, a really well rounded creative person. Thanks, but anyway, man. so I just wanted to let the folks at home know how, you, you know how you and I know each other and. Um, you know, we've, we had a great time working together. And again, I hope, I hope that that, um, comes back to life in some form in the future, yeah. but, um, what's going on with you? You've been up to a lot of cool stuff. You're, uh, doing some really interesting work. So why don't you, well, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking. Oh yes. You know, we always start the show off with Very that. Important. Very important. What, feels, are, what are you having? This feels just like the old days. I feel like we're hanging out. Hang out at work. I uh, not that we. Um, I'm. Um, we have a Vitamix, one of those crazy blenders that's like super yeah. awesome. And so, yeah. literally, I took some like artisan tequila that we keep around, splashed it in the Vitamix, and then threw in a bunch of frozen raspberries and cherries, and just like blended it into this. So I don't know what it's called, but it's good. It looks delicious. I yeah. did a little. I switched it up a little bit, and I'm having a mango cart. Um, but I'm into. I'm really into this new thing. Not. It's not a new thing, but I, I rip off the the lid. You can't really see it here on the camera, but maybe you can a little bit. I Was rip off the, the lid. lid off? Yeah. Mm. And then I, you know, I put a little lime in there, and I put some tahini. So it's almost like a like a fruit cart kind of drink. It's yeah. super refreshing on a on a summer day. So this is what I'm having. I'm having the, the mango cart. Mango cart people, Golden Road, if you're listening and you want to be a sponsor, let me know. But cheers, man. Again, great to cheers. see you. Looks delicious. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing? We'll talk a little bit also about your your past. I'm glad that you're wearing your hundreds shirt because that uh, reminded me that you did some work there as well. So we'd love to hear about that. But tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now. So right now, I've switched gears a little bit. Um and I'm still doing sort of content related stuff, but right now I work for a company called Storyfile. And basically, Storyfile, um, they're a tech startup that can make interactive avatars of anybody. So they started out recording, um, actually, as a project to record Holocaust survivor testimony. That's where the technology was sort of developed. And some of these people went off and started a company where they are um, they're still recording testimony from luminaries and historic figures. We've, we're doing some freedom writers. We're doing a bunch of really awesome people. But now we're also collaborating with with brands and companies to do educational interactive content, to do um, stuff for museums and and uh, like interactive exhibits for museums. So it's still got kind of an experiential, immersive vibe to it, but it's but it's a little more on the sort of product development and which I find really exciting um, right now. Yeah, and and you. You demoed this technology for us uh, at Advantage. We did a call recently, and you demoed it for us. And it is amazing technology. And for anybody that is interested, you guys should should check it out. What's the? Uh, is there a way for them to check it out? Yeah, storyfile.com. Excellent. So yeah. what it is, is I'll just kind of give an example, is um, they've, they've kind of perfected this idea of you go up to, in this particular case, it's a video monitor, but I imagine that in the future it could be a hologram or whatever, and you can ask it questions and be, and through this incredible algorithm, it's able to spit out a very contextual, accurate answer. So the example that you ran us through was a doctor who was talking about, uh, COVID um, mm-hmm. And it's super, I mean, I, we, we keep thinking about it in terms of how we can use it for our clients. Um, so I think it's incredible technology. What are you doing in terms of that project? How are you involved? 
So because of the creative um, background that I have, a lot of what I'm doing is actually sort of, it's a form of writing. One of the things that makes this technology unique is that we're doing these really long video interviews with people and sort of chopping them up. We have this huge database of answers. So you're not just sort of talking to a chat bot and getting like a synthesized answer like you might with Siri or something like that. You're getting like a part of this person's life story or a bit of their actual expertise when you talk to them. But one of the tasks you have to do to make it feel realistic is you have to sort of connect the answers to the questions and help train the AI on the back end to understand the data that's getting from users. So because I have a background in writing and in narrative and in sort of empathy building and experiential activations and stuff like that, I, it made me sort of an ideal fit. I've also worked with them a little bit in the past, but I picked up experience since then that made me effective as, as sort of a creative slash technical um, sort of backend project manager type person. That's just sort of guiding the projects to feel more realistic and empathetic. And then I'm also winding up in a lot of the um, conversations that they're having with brands, because I think I have a little bit of brand experience that I can bring to right. the table, a lot of their experiences in nonprofits and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and as I think about it, I mean, you really are the perfect person to do this because you're a very creative person in general, but you also have this very cerebral side to you. You're, you're, you think in a, in, in really interesting, deep sort of ways. And, and so I think that, you know, as you're describing it, it, it seems like you, this is a perfect, uh, this is a perfect fit for you. Tell us a little bit about that storytelling background that, that you just talked about using in this particular role. How did you, uh, develop that? How did it uh, manifest itself? As I mentioned, you worked at the hundreds. So just give us a little bit of your your career trajectory. Yeah, um, man, where to start? So when I was a kid, I grew up in a really small town in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and there was nothing to do. So I read constantly. I devoured, devoured, devoured like science fiction, fantasy, all kinds of books since I was a kid. I got teased for it. Like I would re read by myself at lunchtime on the playground and stuff. And... I developed facility with some other creative things. Like I did some drawing and I did some music stuff in high school. I played in bands, but I always, I was always good at writing, always got A's on essays. So I just wound up going into comparative literature in college. I, I messed around for a while in college, but landed in comparative literature and communications double major. And it's like, you know, I mean, for people in the audience are thinking, how could you possibly get a job with a comparative literature and communications degree? Right. But you know, we spent time sort of comparing stories for, from all over the world. That's what communicate or comparative literature is about. And so I, I started, but I was always really interested in culture that was happening now. Like we were studying culture from the past, but I'd, I would always push when I would do papers at conferences and stuff like that to do papers on like Lady Gaga or whatever, like current right. contemporary cultural stuff. And I got in, I got an internship at a PR firm in the Long Beach area with Candace Hahn, Pitch Blend, shout out Candace. Um, and I, uh, from there, I sort of bumped around this was during the economic crisis in 2008. So I got a, I had a bunch of sort of weird internships, freelance jobs that didn't pay that much startup, weird startup things. But I just wound up accruing enough experience in the culture industry and enough experience in writing in college to eventually start getting more work sort of crafting, uh, crafting narrative and writing and doing journalistic stuff and getting more and more involved in branding the whole time. You know, I worked for a branding consultancy for a little bit. Um, one of them, actually one of the most formative experiences for me though, weirdly over the past couple of years 
There's this company called uh, Blue Sky Black Sheep. Uh, they're yeah. out of uh, Santa Monica. And the the woman who, the two women who started this company, um, one of the women, they're really extraordinary people. One of them, her name's Kim Agnew, was a sort of back east Condé Nast old school creative, you know, 80s, 90s, and like, and worked at Ralph Lauren and Martha Stewart living and all these crazy, in these crazy situations where they're developing these really big brand ideas um, and culture ideas. And she wanted to do something really intimate and special with this company. So they run like writing groups and put out little small run publications and do really intimate special stuff. And she's amazing at incubating creative ideas. And we got connected through some mutual friends and she sort of took me on as a mentee for like, we've known each other for years at this point. And that really helped me connect a lot of the dots in terms of like, how do I start translating this interest I have in storytelling and an immersive experiences into like an actual career, actual creative output. Right. Um, I could go on. I'm sort of telling my life story. No, this is, this is good. And then from there you went where? Well, during, during this whole process, like I was back and forth between like living, doing stuff in LA and doing all this crazy, heady, creative stuff and like living at my parents' house. Because there was right. an economic crisis and like no nobody you've was really got, paying me that shit, much money. You've gotten you've gotten you've gotten probably the shaft twice, right? So you went you lived oh, yeah. through that, and now you're living through this. Although you were you managed to bounce back really quickly, but so you've you've been through some stuff. Yeah, um, as Confucius said, I live in I've lived in interesting times, which is not like something you actually want. You, you know? have lived in interesting times. Okay, so then from there you bounced around, did some other things, and then. I started putting out my own content on Facebook. I re- I was writing posts every day and sort of developing a following. And one of my friends from college wound up as the editor in chief of the hundreds who puts out really awesome pop culture content. They're a streetwear label um, out of Los Angeles, local, um, local guys who do really awesome, awesome streetwear, but they also do lots of awesome, like pop culture coverage stuff and amazing writing. And so she took me on. And I wrote a bunch of pieces for them, and she really helped me develop my voice, yeah, um, and gain some confidence. And I was sort of doing that for a while, but even that, you know, this freelance writing—it's not really going to pay the bills, right? right? So, so eventually, I wound up. Um, let's see. Let me try and get the timeline right in my head. So, at some point during this whole process, I met my girlfriend, who um, Chloe. Uh, who's incredibly brilliant and who changed my life in a whole number of ways. Um, and one of the ways that she changed my life is there's this lab associated with USC called the, the Institute for creative technologies. Yeah. And she, and she was doing her PhD there, her PhD in computer science. So they're a really interesting outfit. They're sort of um, almost a joint venture between like Hollywood and USC and like, the military, like there's army research stuff that's got gets done there and like computer vision, computer graphics and stuff like that. Okay. So she was in this environment doing her PhD and there, this was where one of the, one of the project that was going on in this lab was the, um, this Holocaust survivor preservation project that was sort of the nascent baby form of story file. Yeah. So she, she was like, Hey, I, she knew I had been messing around with music and audio production for years and she was like, they need somebody to help out with audio on this, on this project, right? So she hooked me up and I did a bunch of tests for them. And they were like, you're great. You're really good at this. I go to town on all this, you know, this, this 
you know, 200, however many hours of Holocaust survivor testimony audio. And I was in this environment where I was at the intersection of technology and, and creativity. And there were all these people who like really believed in doing impossible stuff. Like they, they, they it was an environment where you would ask how to do something. And in a normal workplace, they would just be like, oh, oh, we don't really have a way to do that. Or there's no product or, or thing that can do that for us. In this environment, if you want to do something and it, there's not a way to do it yet, there's a room full of computer scientists who will be like, let's figure out. I'll just have yeah. something together and we'll do that now. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it changed my mentality a lot. Um. After that, this is this is getting it. This is <laughs> so. After, <laughs> this is. But I'm going somewhere with this. I'm okay, going. All somewhere right. Well, with I just this. want to make sure. I want to give you good content. <laughs> so, so like after that, that that sh that project had a finite timeline because once we captured all of the testimony and the yeah. project funding was up, we're done with the project. It's finished. So I had to figure out. Okay, now what am I going to do? How am I going to stay in LA? Right. I was casting about for work and it took a long time for me to find something because as I, as I've demonstrated during this conversation, I have a super weird work history that doesn't make any sense. I was bouncing around all over the place. Or does it? Or and does it? it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Go on, right. go on, go on. So to pick up the, to pick up the slack, I actually, in in between, I actually got a job at LAX at the airport um, helping to coordinate wheelchairs for like the international terminal and terminal right. one at LAX, which led to some of the craziest experiences of my life. Like that job was insane. And working that job made me into a completely different person. I can now deal with things in work environments that, that I, nothing phases me after that job. There's yeah. nothing. So, so it was kind of miserable because it was like just a manual labor job, but it was really formative and changed right. my thinking a lot. So during this process, um, uh, while I was working this job and wondering where's my life going, um, I was applying for stuff. I did a bunch of interviews and I eventually got hooked up um, through a friend, through my girlfriend and a friend to Anastasia at Advantage right. and got an interview with you guys. And right. I, sat, I sat down in front of you and presented you with this incredibly bizarre work history where I'd done my own little weird events and stuff and ran my right. own content outlets and done all this weird you know, tech stuff. And you were like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> this all makes sense. You're exactly. hired. Exactly. And, and yeah. that's, and that's, well, first of all, what I also loved about you was that even though you were coordinating wheelchairs at the at LAX, you took a lot of pride in that. And I remember you saying, well, you know, I can start. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, I got to finish out. You know, I told them that I would finish out these shifts or whatever it was. It's, uh, it was very telling of the type of person that you were, that you were like, I got to finish out this job of oh, yeah. delivering wheelchairs. I got to leave it on a good, on a good note because, you know, before I drop everything and come work for a marketing firm, that's going to be doing all this really cool stuff. So that was very telling to me, but just based on your history, I'm like, this guy is like a very well-rounded creative person that maybe on paper doesn't look like, uh, you know, maybe doesn't have the 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 things that people would think are logically aligned for this person to become an associate creative director at a marketing company mm -hmm. or whatever but i could kind of see like this guy has everything he could write he's put on his own events he knows what it means to put on an experience and not just from you know 
popping up a tent or doing something, but really like understanding what the consumer journey is and what the mindset and what the user experience Mm -hmm. is. So I saw that I was able to, it sounds like I'm bragging about myself and I kind of am a little bit because you should, because yeah, (laughs) no, because I was just able to go like, yeah, this, this, this is perfect for this guy. And I think, I mean, we hit the ground running with a couple of really cool proposals that you were like, oh yeah, I got this, you know, and you just totally nailed it. And again, mm-hmm. you know, had it not been for, uh, for COVID and all that stuff, we would still be, you know, working on, on all this other cool stuff, but I could kind of see that. And I think that that's what makes you a super interesting creative person. And I think that really, you know, whatever your next step is, is going to be pretty incredible. Cause I think you're starting to, it seems like you're starting to sort of coalesce, if that's the right word, all these experiences into something that's very unique. Um, So with all those experiences that you have, how does that, how does that fit into your creative process or how does that guide your creative process when you are thinking about something in terms of a campaign or or an experiential idea, how do the, all those random, seemingly random experiences fit into that? Well, if you're talking, it, it of course depends on the project or the brief, um, and depends on the client too. But I think there's kind of a uniform process that I kind of go through every time. Okay, um, and it involves basically opening myself up to the cultural environment, whatever that environment is that I'm working in. Okay. So whether we're doing an activation in a particular, for a particular demographic or in a particular location, whether I'm reaching out to a specific audience or working, trying to sort of prove the efficacy of a new type of technology, whatever the context is, I want to get in touch with the context, right? So I just start reading, taking information, looking at the stuff that I'm going to be working on. And I just spend some time, like just trying to listen really deeply to like, context okay um and i try to suspend my own assumptions about what i want to do or say or think is the right thing or whatever and just allow that like body of information to speak to me right and i try to get really present to to it and then from there you sort of you you once you so stuff will start popping up. It also helps to be in dialogue with other creatives because because once you allow, allow the stuff to churn, maybe go for a drive, maybe have a conversation. Stuff will ideas will start to percolate, and then once you have some ideas crystallizing, you can start to sort of almost do your way into it, like rapid prototype a little bit. Like let's yeah. try to make a little deck of this, or let's try to do that, or let's investigate by doing right, um, but not doing to completion doing in little bits so that you can sort of get a feel for the, for the environment. And then from there, once you get the, once the, the little bits that survive that evolutionary process, like you kill a bunch of those ideas off. Right. And then you have, you know, some ideas that like, well, this is really good stuff. This is really promising. And this sort of general framework has served me pretty much no matter what kind of weird crap I'm working on. Hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. And I I stole a lot of that. There's a book I stole a lot of that. A lot. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. What's yeah, it there's this. I'll get, I have a copyright. I'm, there's no reason for me to show it. I just realized because it's a podcast, not video, but I <laughs> no, have I a like copyright it. here. Um, it's it's some this guy out of MIT who does organizational change theory. This is called Theory U. And he, I always sort of did that process. And you mm-hmm. probably, that sounds familiar to you too, I'm sure. Because it's just kind of the way you get in touch with 
what a client wants or what an audience wants and make something. And so it's sort of, sort of, it's probably something you're familiar with too, but this guy described it so well, um, you know, that I, that I, I read that and I had this like shock of recognition, like that is what I do every time. So you know? it, it sounds almost, it, it sounds almost, and I, and I wish that I could say that I do that every time. I'd like to think that I do that some of the time, but in our environment, we work so fast that I mm-hmm. probably have to do some sort of short code for that, or I compress that in some way. That's not as what you're describing sounds almost meditative or, you know, like you're opening yourself up to this other, you know, um, to amuse or something like that. Um, is that accurate? Is that kind of the way that you try to do it? And let me add, let me add another question on top of that is how do you do that when you're, you know, you got to do five things that, you know, that five things are due this week or whatever. Yeah. Um, it is kind of like opening oneself up to a muse. I've, I would almost characterize it as like a data, data-driven muse. Like, because I think sometimes um, following your muse can be very, can be a very, um, it, it potentially can be a very self-involved process. Like I follow my muse in a very like selfish way when I'm like just doing music or just doing work that's for me. Right. right. And I still get in touch with context in certain ways, but they're the, they're sort of the contexts that I choose in that situation. Like I want to speak about this weird, you know, whatever. Um, so it is kind of, it's like, uh, it's like a muse. It is, it is very meditative. Um, the guy, uh, this guy, Otto Sharmer actually calls it presencing because, hmm. because he, he sees a lot of in organizations that he works with, he sees a lot of people just sort of what he calls down, re- downloading, repeating past patterns like this yeah. worked before. And this is solidified yes. in, in the institution. And this is a big company and there's, there's a lot of inertia to any moving parts. And so people just sort of do that. So the reason he calls it presencing is you, you sort of suspend your assumptions and then even, and then you even, he he has this, he calls it open mind. Oh, this can sound super fruity, but whatever. Yeah. He's, 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 he um, calls it open mind, open heart, open will. So at the top level, you have to open your mind because you need data from the outside world. If you just operate based on your assumptions, you're going to have bad data or just you're going to repeat old patterns when you're creating stuff. Right. And then open heart means, especially if you're working in a group context in an organization or with a client, you want to be able to see things from their perspective. You want to understand what they need emotionally, what's important to them. Right. And then open will is the weird mystical part almost that he has trouble even describing. He does, he does a pretty good job, but that's sort of where you suspend, almost suspend yourself. Yeah. And you give in to the sort of collective and you're like, what, what wants to happen here? He calls it leading from the emerging future. So like, <laughs> I like when, when people talk to me, I love management theory stuff. Uh-huh. And then, and I, and they're like, if you want to, I tell, I tell everybody, if you want to read a great and incredible management theory book, read Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline is an incredible book. If you want to really read a really good management theory book on mushrooms, <laughs> read, <laughs> read Theory U by Otto Scharmer. It's incredible. But it is like. Do you mean that it sounds like it was written on mushrooms, or that you you recommend reading it while you're on mushrooms? I feel like if you try to read it while you're on mushrooms, it's (laughs) you're just it's that's too too far. You're going to go too far, you know. But you know, obviously, the way that you're describing it, this terminology is sounds 
out there and a little bit nutty, but the 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 core of it is true, right? We tend right. to um we tend to want to repeat patterns. We tend to want to do things that we know our client is gonna like because we don't want to be foolish or we don't want to, you know, fail or we don't want to let our team down. Right. Yeah. And and if you're really trying to do new things and incredible things, you have to you have to let it go and you have to risk looking foolish or whatever it is. And that's sort of what you're describing, right? And I've I've tried to do that with the songwriting club, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I have a tendency in my songwriting to want to make things make sense and to and to wrap up the story so that right. the so that the listener feels some sense of like, oh, it all came together. And recently I've been I've been like, fuck that. I don't why do why mm-hmm. do I care? I'm just I'm just writing the song, right? And I'm just trying to let the song take me wherever it goes. And the same yeah. goes for that that same thing should go for creative, right? It's like I shouldn't try to judge it or try to, you know, um change it because I'm gonna look foolish or because or whatever. Again, I always like to caveat everything. When you apply it to the real world, it's different, but that should be the North Star. You should try, at least try to do that. It should be, I, I think. The and the North Star, it's it's interesting. You said, oh, you try try to make it make sense. And I've done the same thing in the past. And I always think about David Byrne, who named his, you know, their concert film for the talking head Stop Making Sense for a right. reason. He's like, no, you have to stop making sense. He would say in interviews and it's like, all right, David, I got it. I'll, yeah. try, I'll try to stop making sense. Um, but it's interesting because um, there's that thing again of like, I feel like I can get really deep into my own esoteric process when I'm songwriting or something. But, but this guy, Otto Sharmer, when he's talking about leading creative or organizational stuff on like a big institutional level or with a team or with a company, right? Because he's worked with like Shell Oil and stuff like that. This guy, he's like right. super pretty. So he, it's almost like a radically selfless process. And I've seen you do this um, like multiple times because there's something you do this the, this sort of gets into the the role of a creative director a little bit. Like there's something okay. you do when, when you're in a room full of people throwing ideas around where you, where you provide this like container, this context, like it's very easy for a young creative person like me or somebody else who's just getting started to come in with a bunch of like sort of piss and vinegar and a bunch of their own ideas that they're very excited about. Right. right. And you have a very finely honed sense. You would have us do these little exercises, games, write things down, and you would sort of listen to all of the ideas in the room. And you were going through some process where you were listening for something. You're listening for something, you know, and you're like, that's, that's it. Um, so that to me was leading from the emerging future, quote unquote. Like you're listening for what wants to happen because it wasn't just about, I, you, you, you had a clear sense of like, well, I would love to just, you know, whatever, throw a rock concert every time, but like, that's not what quote unquote wants to happen here. Right. You know? So there's something there that you were listening for that always that, uh, you know, I saw this process in that too. I, I, I mean, I, I, I thank you because you're making me sound really cool and smart. I don't know that I, that I deserve <laughs> that, but I'll take it. Um, but sometimes I, I, I do feel like I have a, a bigger picture in mind but I don't always feel that the people that work with me 
understand that and they think that I'm either trying to take a shortcut or that I'm trying to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But sometimes I feel like I'm not doing a good job of communicating what I, what I'm trying to do. And sometimes Mm. to be honest, it's, it's somewhat to protect the people that I'm working with from messing them up too much. (laughs) I'm like taking it in some ways. I'm like trying to take that burden. So it's like, don't worry about all this other shit that I don't want to tell you. I have to deal with in terms of the client. I just want to try to get the best ideas. Yeah. Uh, But it, but it's, uh, it's that's great leadership. Like that's, you're creating this holding space for creatives to work, man. I don't know. I just think it's pretty dope. So you mentioned it, you said it, um, the role of a creative director. What is the role of a creative director in your opinion? That's kind of how I see it. I've, I've kind of given, given the game away, but, but, um, you know, you see it's, it's different from someone who's just, just doing graphic design or just writing copy or just, you know, when you're in that kind of a role, when I was just writing copy or doing things like that, you can just sort of execute, right? There's something that needs to happen. And I could throw a bunch of copy ideas at you. I could write a bunch of copy or do a bunch of proposed visual things or whatever. And you could sort of be like, yes, no, yes, no. So I can kind of be in this production space. But when you're a director and creative director, and this this I, I've read here, I learned from my mentor, Kim, and I've watched you do too. It's this, it's this listening. I almost see, weird as it is, even though it sounds like you're not doing anything, I almost see the job of a creative director as listening in this really deep way mm. to what wants to happen. Mm. I like that. You know, and that can incorporate a bunch of things like what wants to happen incorporates the client and incorporates the people on your team and incorporates what's happening in the culture so that you're staying relevant. You have all of these sort of streams flowing in to your awareness and your job is to listen to all of that and sort of try to discern what wants to emerge, basically. So let me ask you this. What wants to happen in marketing or I'll even broaden that. I'll call it marketing culture for lack of a better way to express it. What do you think wants to happen right now, given everything that's going on with COVID, with, you know, the the sort of, um, you know, cry for social justice and BLM and, you know, all this stuff? What do you think wants to happen for brands or for you know, marketing, Man. or I don't know, since that's what we're talking about, you know, creative directors, let's, let's focus on that. What wants to happen? Totally. So you're, you're going to get me going, man. Cause I have opinions. Um, opinions. <laughs> opinions. Wow. Well, this is, this is a place to express it. Okay. Well, and you know, obviously you and I are, have a very similar kind of political bent. So that, unless you want to get into that, but that withstanding, you know, what, you know, what, wants to happen. Tell me. Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, in the realm of marketing, we are in a bit of a, we're at a bit of a crisis. We can't, well, sorry, before you go into that. Yeah. We can't, we can't ignore, I I think this is maybe where you're heading, but are you heading where going to say something like, well, we can't ignore, marketing cannot ignore what's happening in our world right now. Right. It yeah. has, you have to, and, and brands have been doing it, but is there something larger? But anyway, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt your thought, but no, totally. That's part of that sensing stage. The beginning of that 
that process that I was like describing earlier that I'm like obsessed with right now. Like if you're not taking in information about what's going on, if you're not, if your boundaries aren't permeable, then your work is going to feel tone deaf and irrelevant and you're not going to be connected. And right. you, need, you, you need your own little incubation space too. There are times to go off by yourself, but you, you have to have some sort of dialogue, deeper dialogue with the culture. Um, I, there's all kinds of things. There are all kinds of things going on right now, obviously in the world. And even, even on a deeper level before that, I felt like marketing was heading towards a little bit of a crisis. Um, and there's a number of different ways to talk about why that's true. But one of them is that, um, we rely on, on our ability as marketers to get people's attention. Yeah. And we are, we're starting to discover in the age of social media that attention is a finite resource, right? It's the attention economy. Somebody has talked about that. Yeah. Okay. So more and more technologies are getting leveraged to take more and more bites out of people's attention. And there are only so many hours in the day and people only have so much attention to give. Um, there, there was this idea when the internet started, like we, we had a problem when, this almost goes back to sort of economics and and growth. It's very important to companies because of the way that the economy is structured that they grow. You have to grow every quarter, right? Yep. Um, you do a public offering and you sell your stock off and it's in somebody's mutual fund. And if somebody invests money, they want to see that grow, right? So these companies need to deliver for their stockholders and they need to grow every quarter. And so if the company needs to grow every quarter, they need to expand their customer base. They need to invade new markets. They need to capture more people's resources in various ways. And physical resources we already know are very finite, like the environmental movement talked about that, right? Yeah. But um, when the internet happened, everybody everybody got really excited because everybody was like, well, the internet's this infinite digital space where there's infinite stuff we can make now and we can make infinite everything. Right. And so now we have infinite room to grow. We can just grow forever. And that was the first dot-com bubble. That was everybody. We can grow forever now. And we're slowly starting to realize that that's not true on the internet either. In fact, it might even be less true on the internet because you can get, there there are certain resources are renewable time and attention are not renewable. You can't get time back. Right. So we have to figure out as marketers how to deal with a world where growth is becoming a problem. And that is a big, big knot to untie because every, every, every conversation in marketing is about growth. So let me, let me, let me see if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah. Are, Are you saying that brands need to shift their thinking or shift their end goal um, to be to be growth. They need to be thinking about some other way to measure success. Yes, I think so. That's very radical thinking. Most brands are not ready to have that conversation, right? Um, and, and what is that? So, what is that? Because I, I, I guess I had a similar thought just even talking about this. I don't know that I've given it that much thought, except for saying that brands need to do things to take care of their, the people that purchase their products, right? They need to do better. Right. But are, but are we saying that they need to, you know, does that need to be like radically 
different, you know, and, and it's, and then they're going to have, they're going to forego growth to kind of address that need first. Yeah. So we're seeing, we're seeing little hints of this kind of thinking in some of the most advanced um, sort of brands in terms of customer relations, like Patagonia and stuff like that, where Patagonia will tell their consumers, like, don't buy more of our products, which is like, what, you know, but they're saying it. Um, do they quote unquote really mean it? I don't know if that's even a productive thing to ask. How would you determine whether they quote unquote really mean it? Would you like give Rick Ridgeway a, a lie detector test? You know what I mean? Like how would you, right. <laughs> you know, right. Um, but, uh, but that is the kind of radical thinking, but the thing is like, like you say, it's a, it's a pretty radical step. I think, I think you, you hinted at like. Is it, sorry, sorry. Maybe this will, so are we talking about more brands need to be doing what Tom's is doing? Like that kind of stuff? Or is it more like. You got my thought. Yeah. You know, is it, is it more than that? Is it like, um, you know, we're switching all our banking over to a, you know, black owned bank or like what, what, what is it? That's part of it that you, you found my thought for me. Thank you. That's part of it. Um, I think those efforts towards sustainability, towards sustainable communities and towards uplifting marginalized people can, can really help make the situation on this planet better. But I've noticed in a lot, even in a lot of those situations, um, companies will be doing some pretty great things in terms of sustainability or in terms of social justice, but underneath it, bubbling there's still this growth motive there's this yeah we 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 need to engage with these causes and stuff and we need to sell you know a million, right, right. More, a million more jackets next right. year or whatever it is we're selling right and when people don't actually need more clothes because fashion turnover is way too fast already and our clothes should be made to last a long time but they don't you know right the, there there's always this sort of little bit of a bubbling growth motive at the bottom and I think baby steps can be taken. Like, I think it's it's great that brands are engaging with these kinds of sustainable um, sort of sustainability conversations. I think it's super important and that's going to lead to a better future for all of us. Um, but there is a more radical conversation that will have to happen some at some point in the future about what is actually the financial structure of these companies and is it okay to have a brand that grows to a certain size and just does great things for their customer base and serves their customer base and doesn't need to grow any bigger. Well, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that because I, I was reading the, this book called it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And it was written by the, by the folks that um, by the base camp people. And that was kind of what they said is that like, we didn't, that's not our MO, right? Our MO is to, they don't have like they don't have different prices for enterprise versus an individual that wants base camp. They're just like, we don't we don't need that. We don't want that. Um, and I haven't you know, I haven't really followed up on them recently, but it, it was pretty refreshing. It's like we don't want to that's we don't want to compete. We don't want to be in that rat race of where we're we're trying to grow every quarter. We want to provide a really great product. And we want to service the clients that we have in the best way that that we can, and and that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so so then what's so what's the what's the core 
problem here. It's it's the it's the stock market. It's uh, capitalism. <laughs> I don't know. It, it it might be. You know, one of my favorite um, one of my favorite thinkers, this guy named Douglas Rushkoff, who like anybody who wants to understand what's what's going on in the media and digital economies and stuff, read Douglas Rushkoff. Read everything he writes. Um, but he he talked about uh, what happens when you take the money. What happens when you take the VC money? What happens when you go public? And he talked about seeing like Jack Dorsey or one of the Twitter guys on the cover cover of Time magazine when when they took their when they either when they IPO'd or they took this big, you know, and this, this is the valuation of the company. And everybody was very excited for for Twitter. And they were like, oh, this is amazing. You guys made it. And Doug Rushkoff said, I saw that. And I was like, congratulations, you're fucked, man. Cause now you got to deliver. You got to like, in what world Twitter makes billions. It's, it's a 240, whatever, or 240 now character messaging app that makes literally billions of dollars every year, but they're still going after brand deals because they got to grow. Yeah. They're still, you know, and that's, that's it. That was a really interesting perspective. Um, so it's like, it's some of it might have to do with like what, ha- what the deal, the deal that, with the devil you make when you take that money. And it's not like you can't ever do it. Like I want to be really careful about black and white thinking. Like I think growing when you're a small company and you have a lot to offer the world can be great. It's a very case by case conversation. Yeah. But I feel like, and I was talking with my partner about this, I feel like there's this feeling you can actually sense in a company when they're growing and establishing new connections with their consumers because their consumers really need them and are excited versus when they're like pushing. Right. When they're sort of pushing that we got to grow at all costs and we don't even really know why or who our target consumer is, but we have to sell more things. Well, you know, know, yeah. You know, what's funny is that the next the next generation of consumers are wise to that like my my kids we were walking the dogs yesterday and they were talking about the new what what is it iPhone 12 or whatever 13 i think or whatever mm-hmm. right and they're like why does anybody need this they they're running out of ideas <laughs> they're like they're oh running out of God. ideas all they did was make it you know all they did was make it bigger and and reduce the lag time i mean they know so much about stuff but it's just oh so funny God. Or maybe it's because they've heard me talk about things or whatever, but I think it's just them uh, intuitively going, calling bullshit and going like, they're just shoving these things, you know, they're just, they're just shoving these things down our, our throat. And personally, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of over the whole uh, iPhone thing. I'm still going to be, I love, you know, I, I love that it connects to everything, but I'm, I have this iPhone that's not charging anymore. And I'm just like, I'm just not, I just don't care. I'm not excited about it. I, this no. is, I'm just going to ride this thing until I have to, you know, whatever. But I think that they're savvy to it. All right. I think so. Maybe, maybe not, but I think they're coming up going like, this is bullshit. Why, why they're just, they're just making shit up and it doesn't, there's no benefit to it. No, they're, we're only seeing like incremental little improvements anymore. And there, it's not these big quantum leaps like right. Steve Jobs used to do. Yeah, and that's where, and that's sometimes where I feel dirty um, as a marketer because we're, you know, not personally, we're 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 not doing this, but some marketers are like marketing these things that you know, like five G or some other faster bandwidth that you, as a consumer, probably can't even notice on your phone, right? Like you can't notice. Yeah. Because it's just so fast already that it's like, 
it's yeah. 10% fat, you know, 50% faster. Yeah. Your, your brain can't even process that, but it makes for a good, why well, I got to have that. I got to, yeah. yeah. You know. Or you can't, or you can't even access it. Like there are a lot of places that aren't even served by five G yet, but they're still uh, charging you for that five G capability when you buy the phone, man. Right, ninety percent of the time you're not even the five G network isn't even. So know. besides Patagonia that you mentioned, do you are there any other brands that you think do a nice job of that kind of thing? Yeah. I think there are brands that are doing interesting stuff, interesting stuff in this space. Nobody is perfect because we, I don't think we as a species have figured it out yet. You know, how do we, how do we be on this planet without consuming too much? None of us really know. So, um, and you know, how do we square our ethical, our desire to support, you know, social justice and various things with the, with the fact that we have to, you know, make enough money to survive. None of us really know hundred percent. But um, one of my favorite brands that I like to use as an example, have you heard of American Giant? Yes, I've, I've bought stuff from them. I bought a jacket from them and I bought some shirts. Yeah, I like them. Yeah, they, they, uh, their founder went on this incredible journey to uh, one of my favorite uh, articles I've ever read. And, and uh, it's in New York Times. And it's basically how this guy went on a quest. The guy who runs American Giant went on a quest to find out if it was possible to still make flannel in the United States. Because this iconic American garment, flannel, yeah. was no longer made by anybody in this country because it was too expensive to make. And so, he, and so he went all over the country meeting with people, learning from like old timers who like still knew how to run the machines and like locating old factories and old pieces of machinery. And it's like, can we produce cost-effective flannel in this country anymore or is it impossible and by doing this can we bring jobs back to areas that have been devastated by a loss of manufacturing and and stuff like that it's a it was like a huge challenge he did it and to me that is that is an impressive brand vision to me that's cool that is like you really wanted to create something you really wanted to bring something into the world that matters you know Um, yeah that's a way that I think one way that I think um, marketing agencies and big brands can think about this is there are all kinds of amazing ways I think that brands can partner with people who are developing new technology or partner with communities um, to help build things. These brands have these resources and there, there are all kinds of really amazing ways that they can invest those resources and create new partner with agencies and creative people and incubators and whoever to create new things instead of just, um, trying to get eyeballs with ads or whatever. Yeah. Well, what do you think about, so it's kind of similar to, especially with everything that's going on with COVID and that's preventing, you know, musical artists from touring and it's preventing all kinds Mm -hmm. of artists from creating and doing what they do. Mm -hmm. So does that open it up, open up the door for brands becoming more patrons of the arts, you know, or things, things of that nature, because they're going to, I mean, I feel like they're going to need it. Who knows when we're going to get back full steam ahead to the way we were before COVID, right? Is that, is that going to be a role that, Brands can fail. And then does that end up becoming like passe? And it's like, well, you know, because because on the flip side. You know, we've we've sort of in, in some ways been sort of bashing our own industry, but on the flip side, 
as consumers, we're fickle as fuck, right? It's like, yeah. what's the next thing? What have you done for me lately? We're, we're just, yeah. we're on to the next thing. So, you know, that's also something you got to consider. It's like, well, we're, we're going to do this thing and then people are going to love it for about a year and then they're going to get tired and then we got to do it again. And Yep. Yep. I, I think that's one of the hardest parts for people to get their heads around is like, quote unquote, whose fault is it? And we have big systemic problems um, with the economy and we have nefarious actors who do gnarly things like Trump or whoever. Right. But, but a lot of this stuff is systemic and people hear that word a lot and they're like, well, what does that even mean? Well, let's say, um, you know, an, an example of there, there's some, there's some horrible, like, awful fast food restaurant or something that gets built in your community that you don't like something happened in your community that you don't like some company is doing something there that you hate, right? That sucks. And so who does that person blame? Well, they can blame the person. um, They can blame the person working at that, you know, who, 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 who franchised that or whatever and set it up in the community. But that person is just trying to make a living, right? They're just trying to like the people that work there, they can blame the people that work there, but those people are just trying to sort of make their paycheck. They looked for a job and they were desperate and they found one like me and a lot of my compatriots and they're doing their best. And so, so, okay, who do those, and and who do those people blame? It's like, okay, the people in the company don't even necessarily like what's happening. They're working for a paycheck. Well, they blame the management level above them, of course. Right. And this just goes all the way up the chain and, and until you get to the board. And then especially if it's a public company, you get to the stockholders and who are the stockholders? Well, the stockholder is the guy in that living in that neighborhood who doesn't like this thing that's happening, but who invested his money in a fund that he doesn't want to have to watch that just tracks the S and P 500. And so when this company grows his, his, you know, right. Retirement goes. So, so when you try to figure out who's doing it, you, there's nobody at the wheel. Like <laughs> there's no one there, yeah. you know, it's just and kind we, of a, yeah. And this is, this is why I can't even remember. I'm, I went off on this thing and I can't even remember which question I'm answering, but this is why it feels important to think about how these, how the systems actually work and what they incentivize. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, anybody that doesn't believe that there's, there are systemic issues in all different types of um you know industries or facets or whatever you want to call it watch the documentary 13th and obviously that's systematic race racism and sort of a this systematic way that you know um people of color have been sort of targeted to end up in in prison so watch that and if you if you can't wrap your head around the fact that there are some systemic things if you can't admit that there's something there then you're never going to be able to fix it but it it definitely exists and it probably exists in all kinds of different you know systemic issues exist in all kinds of different facets or or ways yeah totally yeah it is tough like we all want our doordash and we want our tiktok and we want um and those things are great in, in a whole host of ways but but it, it it is it, it I think when marketers are trying to figure out what to do when they're sitting in the room with brands like you said and it's like do they support these it's like say they want to support music venues because music venues are having a tough time during the pandemic or they want to support and you said it can get cheesy 
It's true it can, but it's very case by case. Like everybody holds up, you know, Red Bull Music Academy as as a as a shining example, but there's a reason for that. Like because because when you're getting to listen to, you know, James Murphy from LCD Sound System talk passionately for like 2 hours about synthesizers or whatever, that's not cheesy. That's amazing. You know, I mean if you're a huge music nerd like me, but it depends right. on the audience. But there, there are ways to partner in, in, I think for brands to partner with communities in ways that really authentically enhance that, that community's experience. And in ways, like I said before, that like bring new th- actual new things into the world. Like, um, we're working with, um, at story file, we're working with, um, a couple of, um, players in the medical space. I can't talk about who, but yeah there's a real interest in their part. We're doing some pilot programs and and there's a real interest in their part, not in just hiring us to make some flashy thing, but in we're going to, we're going to work with you and do a pilot project and actually help you develop this technology so that we're, we're working together and there's a cultural end. And then there's a tech end to actually bring something new into the world. And I feel like that might be an underexplored space. Um, I think there are lots of big brands that do have like incubators, I think a lot of times those incubators just sort of serve their own needs. Um, but that's something that really excites me and, and maybe is, is fertile ground for what you're talking about. It's like, how can you bring something, actually bring something new into the world? How useful it is, is it to people? Right. Uh, that guides my thinking a lot. So what you've mentioned, some, some books that you like and some, you know, you mentioned some articles or people that you follow. What other things are, you know, where else do you draw inspiration from um it's interesting because right now uh a lot of my inspiration i spend a lot of time reading these like big idea books and stuff like like we were talking about earlier but a lot of times right now my these days my inspiration comes from deep deep dives listening to like deep dives people deep diving into processes and industries that i am like totally unfamiliar with like there, I'll give you an example. There's this um, YouTube talk that I watched recently where there, inside Google, there's a, a hacker sort of team. I think they're yeah. called Team Zero. Okay. But their their job is basically to just try and break shit. Okay. Because Google wants to be ready if right. people try to break shit. So there's this crack team of fucking Navy SEAL level hackers that go in and try to break everything. Yeah. Which just sounds like the coolest job in the universe. But um, this, uh, girl who's on this team, this woman, uh, gave a little talk about her quest. You know, Tamagotchi is the little, yeah. gigapet. like she was like, she basically gave this like hour long talk about, this is my story of attempting to hack a Tamagotchi. And <laughs> like, I think the talk was called many Tamagotchis died in the making of this talk or something okay. like that. And she just like bought tons of them and tried to get in there and understand, okay, what are the actual inputs to make it, it can talk to other Tamagotchis. So if I like hack a, like a infrared remote control, can I like make my Tamagotchi have like infinite food or whatever? And like taking apart the circuit board, it was like a two hour long. And she, and, and these are like really um, sort of mass produced products. They're not really designed to be hackable. So she had to get into all this weird lookup documents on the internet and stuff. So this is one hour video about her, just like the process of her attempting to hack a Tamagotchi. And I was <laughs> fascinated by this (laughs) i was fascinated so this is the kind for whatever reason right now like i'm i'm interested in this very high level stuff but then i feel like i'm getting a lot of inspiration right now from like these weird niches 
that I don't know anything about. I always learn something new from these processes that people go to, how much goes into film special effects, how much right. goes into game design. I always learn something when I watch stuff like that. That's cool. That's cool. And that's, I think, again, that's what makes you so interesting that you just, uh, you just love to dive into just things that you don't know about and nerd out and, and geek out. That That's cool. I think all of us need to do uh, more of that. So uh, we've come to that time in the show where we have to pay off the, the title. Oh Con- yeah. Confessions of a creative director. So I hope you've, you've come up with something uh, very juicy, but there's something that you want to confess, get off your chest. Uh, this, you have the, you have the platform. Uh, I have a few since, since this is the title of the show, I thought about a couple of different things I could confess, but one, this is kind of a silly story that I like, haven't told that many people like I didn't have super great social skills when I was a, a kid, um, you know, like I, in elementary school and stuff. I, like I said, I read a lot. I was kind of a nerd. And so to attempt to be cool during this one period, I think it was in junior high, I had like an, an uncle that I like made up a fictional <laughs> uncle that was like super cool and like worked for MTV and did all this crazy cultural shit and got me into these like cool events and stuff. And I would just like, I don't, I I don't understand why, like I I was such a like fabricator at that age. It's so weird because I I consider myself pretty rigorously honest person now, but, um, but for whatever reason, I had this story that I would tell people about this cool uncle that I had. Um, so that's my confession. And like, I, I had, I was thinking about this the other day and I realized that I've become my fictional cool uncle. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So, if, so it's like, it's, it's, I guess that's as good a life goal as any. That, that's, that's freaking awesome. So you sort of, um, manifested that you became, you became yeah. the cool uncle. Oh my God. Yeah. That is Clearly I was awesome. Like project, I was like projecting into the future or something or trying to. That's really cool. That's really cool. I love that. I love that. So what's, uh, what's next for you? What do you think? Um, what do you think the, the future holds? Um, you got to get back into the songwriting, man. Cause you know, it's, know. your songs are, um, amazing. And, and, and then maybe I'll put up a link so that people can, can hear some of your stuff. Uh, Ooh. it's very, it's very cool. Uh, but what else is next? What else, you know, I, um, I do want to do more creative stuff. that's personal. And dig into my own, but I'm also really interested in just what we sort of talked about where all this stuff is going culturally. And for that reason, the story file thing is actually kind of cool because I feel like I'm learning. I want to get deeper into that weird blended middle space between marketing and like, or cultural creation and like product development. So almost blurring the lines between storytelling and product and marketing till it's all sort of just like one thing. Yeah. And I have that, I started that newsletter, the Arm the Armageddon Club has just been like my sort of personal label for all the random stuff that I do forever. Yeah. Like it hasn't really been a thing. It's just been a random label I slap on when I do an event or whatever. Um, but I'm starting to think of it as like an experimental space where I just try to figure out that relationship. So probably both both at Storyfile and with my own cultural production stuff on the side, I think I just want to get deeper into blurring that line, making cultural stuff that is a real thing and really serves people. Um, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And tell, tell everybody what the, how they can access your, this newsletter that you're talking about. Oh, um, it's, uh, let me see and make sure that I know 
the URL properly. Yeah, it's it's this service called Substack, which is a really great simple newsletter distributor. So it's the Armageddon Club, just one word, the Armageddon Club dot substack.com. If people want to check it out, I have one article up there sort of talking about the ethos of the newsletter. But um, but yeah, experimenting in that space, experimenting with more more music and stuff, and just trying to get deeper into that that meeting point between between product and brand and technology and see what we can create. That's kind of That's where I awesome. see the future. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I I have big uh big expectations and and of you as you continue to grow in your career. And like I said, you know, I I hope that we can work together again in the future. I just I enjoyed so much our time that we did work together. And I just find you to be super interesting and compelling and, and just, a, just, and also just a fun person to be around and a great person to work with. So hopefully we get to do that again in the future. Thanks for taking the time to uh, be on the podcast and uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, buddy. Great seeing you. Great seeing you too. And thank you for everything. You've been an amazing mentor and a guide. So I feel the same way about you, man. Thank you. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Take care. Oh, you know, that kind of stuff really makes uh, makes it all worthwhile uh, as an executive creative director to know that uh, some people look up to you as a mentor and a guide. I started to get choked up there when he was saying that. And I was like, I got to go. Bye. Um, but, yeah, that's really great to hear. And, and Devin's an incredible uh, person and just a great creative uh, mind. And I just can't wait to see what he does going forward. So thanks for tuning in. I'm posting this on the Friday before the big election, so I hope everybody gets out there and shares their voice. And with that in mind, I'm going to play you out with uh, the latest tune from my song club. It's called Tuesday's Coming. I'm going to play it in its entirety. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Peace. Peace.